Why did Jesus quote Psalm 22 on the cross? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hero of the Story presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me, as always, is Brian Dembozik. So, Brian, we are finally here. We are at the Friday morning of Jesus' final week in Jerusalem before his crucifixion, um, and actually dealing with the crucifixion today. Yeah, this is uh, the Friday morning, as you said, the wee hours. Uh, we kind of talk about the trials on the last episode. They kind of go overnight into the early morning hours. We're going to pick up there. And then, of course, it goes into the afternoon. The, the crucifixion lasted several hours. So, yeah, we're. I mean, this is it. This is arguably the most important day in history. And it's going to be a really... Uh, hopefully helpful, but enjoyable for us, no matter what time to kind of look in at this and look at Mark's account of this story. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I know, uh, just before, as we get into this, we're going to be looking at this from Mark chapter 15. So we're exploring that account primarily, um, of this. I mean, as we all know there, the, this is, this is one of those events that is covered in every single one of the gospels, which means that it's extra, 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 extra important. Um, did I get enough extras in there? No, you need one more. Did I get one, a, one more? Would help. Okay, extra. There, there we go. So I got. A, I think I got four in there. So, um, <laughs> but um, so there's a lot that's going on here because we're going to be looking. We're looking beyond the um, the initial arrest and and his mock trial into some of the later the the later interactions that he has, um, including, um, including a really key one that happens in, uh, starting in verse six of this chapter where Pilate and the crowd are, are discussing what to do with Jesus. So, um, with all of that said, let's, let's just jump right into this because there's so much to discuss. Um, as we think about Mark 15, what are some of the questions that we should be asking when we read and discuss this passage? Yeah, Aaron, as you said, I'm, we're going to kind of pick up right at the tail end of um, Jesus standing before Pilate. So the chapter opens with that. And then verse 6, where we're going to kind of pick up more, it's the exchange about Barabbas himself, about releasing a prisoner, releasing of Barabbas. Um, and that, that's the first question as we look at this. You know, why did the crowd call for Barabbas to be freed and Jesus be, to be crucified? And again, we see this in verses 6 through 15. And it tells us a lot here in the text, but there's a bigger idea I don't want us to miss. And it's going to connect with what happens right after this as well, I believe. But, you know, we know that Pilate was not sold on executing Jesus. He intimates as much as in verse 10 here, verse 15, he kind of relents. If you read the parallel passages in, in the other Gospels, it's clear that Pilate was resisting, uh, not because he was an advocate of Jesus, but because he just didn't find grounds to crucify him. I think he just thought, hey, this is, this is some religious matter. I, you know, I don't want to get involved in this. It doesn't seem like he's done anything terrible. And so he's reluctant to, to agree to the execution or, or order the execution, as the, as the case may be. You know, in Matthew, it has him washing his hands and saying, all right, fine, I'm going to give you what you want, but I'm washing my hands. I'm, I'm not guilty of this. I'm innocent. It, his blood's on, on you. And we know 
that the chief priests, though, were stirring up the crowds. Again, we see it here in verse 11. They were prompting the people to turn on Jesus and, and call for his crucifixion and to release a Barabbas, who was a, a bad criminal. I mean, he was no—it's not like they loved Barabbas. It just shows they would rather have let Barabbas free and send Jesus to his execution. But I think what's happening here, and again, this is all true. This, this happened. I don't want anybody to misunderstand. But I believe that this is here for another reason, a deeper reason, and it's to affirm that the people themselves rejected Jesus as well. We know that the religious leaders had. Several times in the Gospels, we read the religious leaders turned on him and said they were open to who he was at first, and then they said, no, we, this guy, we don't, we don't like him, and they started looking for ways to get rid of him. So we know they had rejected Jesus. But what I believe Mark and the other gospel writers inspired by the Holy Spirit want us not to miss is that it wasn't just a plot by the religious leaders. It wasn't just the religious leaders. The people were complicit too. And Peter is going to come back to this in Acts when he's preaching at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, he says, fellow Israelites, so again, he's talking to the people. He's not talking about the religious leaders. He's talking to the average citizens. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. So you saw who Jesus was. You saw what he did. You heard him teach. You recognize there was something different about him. Verse 23, though he was delivered up according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. So Peter there is really clear to put blame, at least in part, on the people themselves. And it it echoes back to this. They could not say, wait a minute. No, we didn't order the execution. Rome did. And we didn't turn him in. The religious leaders did. Had they balked at this, Peter would have said, do you not remember crying out, crucify him? Do you not remember crying out for Barabbas' release? So I think that's why it's important here. It's a reminder who is responsible for the crucifixion. And another step in this direction, it should remind us that we likely would have been clamoring for Jesus' crucifixion as well. Had we been there that day, we likely would have been chanting as well. We, we have to prevent ourselves from, you know, reading ourselves as the heroes into the text and be like, oh no, we would have known better. I think humility demands that we recognize we probably would have been calling for his, his rejection because we live this way quite a bit today. You know, we may not verbalize it, but we live in many ways. We make a lot of decisions that are selfish driven, that are against Jesus um, against acknowledging his lordship in our lives, for example. So to me, I think this is one way that the Holy Spirit inspiring Mark and the other gospel writers is to convict us of our sin and remind us, it pulls us into this account. Yeah, that's a, and that's a really good point there, is uh, there, there definitely is this temptation to come to the text with a little bit of a haughtiness or a... Um, you know, to use a a term that that C.S. Lewis enjoyed very much, um, a chronological snobbery, <laughs> um, and and it's not just because and it, but it's not just that that sense of oh well, you know, people in this day were were dum dums or anything like that. It does come down to this whole idea of 
um, there are like we read the accounts and and say, oh well, if it was us, we never would have done this. When, yeah, yeah, we would have. So thanks for thanks for bringing that up. Um, another question that we should be asking here is is why did the soldiers mock Jesus? And so we see this in verses fifteen or verses 16 through 20, rather. Um, and, you know, we see all kinds of things happening here. We see them them actually beating him. We see them mocking him, um, putting a purple robe on him and parading him around, um, mock bowing down to him, um, and then spitting on him and kicking him. All kinds of, all kinds of wild, wild things that just is shocking to us today. And what we need to recognize there is that that was part of the Roman practice of crucifixion. Um, Humiliation played a key role in punishing the worst of the worst of criminals. The act itself of crucifixion, even, though, was barbaric. I mean, so much so that Roman citizens could not be crucified in order for Rome. Like, they would have to strip them of citizenship if they were to actually crucify someone who was a citizen. Um, But those uh, crucified were truly deemed the worst of offenders. And so they made an example of them, and there was pretty much no limit. They could do anything to them. And so in this, we see the, the Old Testament prophecies around the Messiah and the suffering servant, him being beaten and dejected. But there's something else here, too. So... Yes, there's this fulfillment of prophecy, there's this just outright act of humiliating Jesus, this no-holds-barredness, but this other thing that's going on here is, um, is actually a parallel with what happened earlier with the crowds who rejected Jesus. We're seeing here that the, that the Gentiles are doing this as well, and so there's this affirmation of, all people, regardless of background, regardless of anything, all play a part in his rejection. And so it's, um, you know, although we're always prone to get a little bit ahead of ourselves, this is where I'm going to do it, at least in this moment, is that it's it's this dark moment, but it is also a, a reminder um, in terms of a parallel of how just as you know, in in Romans, how how Paul says that all have have um, rejected God, um, but all and all are condemned um, condemned by their sin. But the grace of of God is given to all who believe in Christ, whether they are Jew or Gentile. So, so the so even in that moment, if you're just focusing in on that, there's something there's something beautiful there if you're looking forward toward the gospel. And it's interesting because what happens next, the next question, I, you know, we encounter Simon the Cyrene. And I think after seeing two parts of the text that we just talked about, where we see the people, both the Jewish people and now Romans, uh, the soldiers who are culpable, who are mistreating Jesus. And, uh, you know, it's bad what we're seeing there. There's this glimmer of of hope. Uh, there's this this subtle glimmer of of glory that comes in this this brief mention of Simon the Cyrene, and we might miss it if we just look at this in a vacuum. Because 
you're looking at it, and, and again, so they make Jesus carry the cross. And by the way, a lot of times artwork will depict Jesus carrying a literal cross, the cross beam and the upright. No, it, it probably was just the cross beam. The upright would have most likely already been in place wherever they were going. And so the cross beam itself is what they generally would have the, the condemned prisoner carry. Again, further um, humiliation parading them through the city on purpose because, again, Rome wanted everybody to know, you turn your back on us, you betray us, you you break the law seriously, this is going to happen to you as well. So parading these prisoners through through the city. And we see this, again, it is aside. It feels like an aside where Mark mentions, this is in other passages as well, I believe, uh, that Simon picks up the crossbar and starts carrying it for Jesus, or he's made to, because Jesus could not. And really, I mean, this kind of helps us understand how weak Jesus was now having been beaten. The beating itself could have killed him. And from what I understand, it often would. A lot of prisoners would not make it to the cross themselves because they were just beaten to death beforehand. But there's something else here, and here's the glimmer of hope. So Mark mentions Simon and that, you know, his two sons here. And the way he makes it sound... It's, it seems like they're, they would have been known to the reader. You know, there's, why mention him? Why mention the sons and everything? It seems like he's identifying intentionally, oh, you know this Simon. It's, it's Simon, the father of, of Rufus and, and so forth. Well, if you look at Romans 16, 13, Paul sends greetings to Rufus. And a lot of, uh, a lot of commentators believe that this is the same Rufus. This is Simon's son, Rufus mentioned here. And so perhaps Simon became a believer, uh, which is not a hard stretch to consider. I mean, imagine you're the man who carried this crossbeam. Uh, I'd imagine Simon would have been compelled maybe to stay and watch and witness what happens. Um, and so to think that Simon could have come to a point where he trusted in Christ, the one who, whose crossbeam he carried, I don't think is a hard reach. And then if, if that is the case, then it would make sense that Rufus here is known. And that would make sense why Mark references these as if they would have been known to the audience of the letter. So again, we're, we're carefully taking a step or two from the scripture and, and connecting some dots that we may be connecting correctly or may not. So we have to be careful. But if we are connecting them correctly... I mean, it's a glimmer of hope here. And, and again, you see some good is coming out of this. And we, of course, know the greatest good is going to come out of it, ultimately. Another one is, so another question that we've got here is one that we see coming out of verse 26, which is, what was written on this sign that was placed above Jesus on the cross? And so uh, each of the Gospels, interestingly, record something just a little bit different. So Mark 15, 26 says, this is the, uh, just says, the king of the Jews. Very direct. Very much like Mark. It's very Mark. <laughs> um, it's to the point. Matthew twenty seven thirty seven says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Luke in Luke 23, 38, just says, this is the king of the Jews. And then John 19, 20 says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king because of the John Jews. Because John has to be different. 
He just has to be a little bit different, just a little bit. Uh, so no, this is, but but it is interesting that they all have the King of mm-hmm. the Jews there. There are some interesting things here uh, to think about. Like so, you'll hear this this brought up the fact that all four gospel accounts say something a little bit different, although they all end with this same thing: the King of the Jews. And so skeptics will wrongly use this use this as an attempt to call into question the Bible's veracity or its truthfulness, um, because they'll say, "Well, they don't even agree on what's said on the on the sign, except that they all do. They all say the King of the Jews." But <laughs> what we need to recognize here is uh, a couple of key things. First, that um, each author is presenting every detail from their perspective and their from the, for their unique purposes. Each one of them though clearly saw that it was important to say that Jesus was the king of the Jews, that this is the thing that he was being tried and executed for. Um he was so essentially it was he was treated he he was being treated almost as a as a well, basically, as a as a political rebel, even though he wasn't, <laughs> we we've talked about that before. Each one of these provides a fragment of that longer inscription, so it's probably most accurate to say that what the what the thing said was, "This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews." So all to take it all together, and that's essentially what you have. This was basically what he. This was um, a recognition of the criminal, and then what he was what he was being executed for. Um, and so, if I remember correctly, uh, each one of the um, each one of the prisoners would have had a similar yeah. kind of inscription, um, or each one of the those who are being executed, rather, as opposed to prisoners. Um, yeah, they would, all would have had so, something. It, it like would have been something right, to, to to share why they were being executed, so what crime they had yeah. committed. Yeah, yeah, and so all we see is Jesus's crime was being yeah. the king. And you know, I think this is really <laughs> important. As you were saying, Aaron, that this is often used to uh, discredit the scripture, but it, it strengthens it. It, it. Again, had all the gospel writers written the same thing, then you would say, all right, it's, that smells like collusion. Um, it seems like they got their stories together. And again, we have to be careful. Words matter. And none of these writers said, this is the totality of what the sign said. This is only, you know, it only said whatever. So logic and just the use of language allows for this. Um, and it, it kind of makes sense when you think about it. Mark, you know, we, we kind of joke, but he is the most succinct. So he's going to cut to the chase. Uh, Matthew, it doesn't surprise me that he'd want to make sure that his Jewish audience connected Jesus with King of the Jews. Make no mistake, because that was one of his main themes of his book. And then John, it makes sense that he would mention Nazareth because he starts his gospel in chapter one with the encounter, well, not the very beginning after the prologue, he has the encounter with Jesus and Nathaniel, where Nathaniel asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So it's kind of bookending that. It makes sense that John would say, let me draw out Nazareth, where Matthew, Mark, and Luke say, it doesn't matter, Nazareth, the, what matters is king. So you can kind of understand why they each kind of focused on what, on the different parts that they, they provided. 
So I, I think that takes us to the next question. I mean, we're talking about the cross, the sign on the cross, and then Jesus is, is hung up on the cross. And I, I think we want to just talk for a minute about what did crucifixion involve? Uh, getting ahead of ourselves as we're prone to do, especially if we're discipling somebody, and especially if somebody is not familiar with crucifixion, um, I, I think it's helpful for us to remember this. So let's just take a minute, and not a deep dive, because we don't want to get into all the gore, um, but crucifixion was a slow, agonizing death. I remember as a kid thinking that what killed them were the wounds in the, in the hands and feet, bleeding out. No, that was not it. I mean, a lot of times they were just tied to the cross. They were not always nailed. Um, and even that would not have killed them. That, you know, the, the nail would have plugged the wound most likely. And um, they, they would not have died from that per se. Crucifixion was not designed to kill a person that way. Crucifixion was designed to kill by suffocation. That's why it was a slow, painful death. And so what happened is you would have the person hanging there, and as their strength gave out, their bodies would sag, and then their lungs would compress, making it hard for them to breathe. And so they would have to push up off of that little uh, piece of wood that their feet were on, holding them up. They would push up to lift their body to get air in their lungs until they tired again and sagged. And that process kept repeating over and over again for hours, sometimes days, until finally they had no more strength. They sagged, their lungs compressed, and they had no strength to push up, and therefore they suffocated to death. This is why in other, Mark doesn't mention it, but other gospels mention that because it was becoming late and it was becoming near the pass or the um, the Sabbath, they started breaking the legs of the other prisoners. That's the reason. If you broke the legs, they, of course, couldn't push themselves up and they would suffocate more quickly. Um, so this is, this is what's going on here. And again, especially with kids, we don't need to get into all the gory details, but I think we need to understand what was going on here. It, it helps us connect dots to other accounts, like the breaking the legs we mentioned, but also, it reminds us of the suffering. Um, the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would suffer for sin, not just die, suffer and die for sins. This was suffering that Jesus was enduring. And that really, and that leads right into the last question, or the next question that we should be asking, which is the one that actually led off this episode. What did Jesus mean when he asked why God had abandoned him. So why did he quote Psalm 22? So there are a lot of there are a lot of questions about this, about what exactly he was doing in 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 quoting this psalm. Um, but let's just let's actually let's let's actually read this. And so so I'm going to go through the whole psalm the whole thing, um, which is something that that I think a lot of us um, as Western believers, we don't often do, is go through the whole thing to get, like, we, we see the quote and we stop kind of at the first or second verse. So listen to this. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, 
enthroned on the praises of Israel. Your ans- our ancestors trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you and were not disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. It was you who brought me out of the womb making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Don't be far from me because distress is near and there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me. The strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions mauling and roaring. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are just disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the, the roof, of, roof of my mouth. You put me in the dust of the earth. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers have enclosed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divide my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue my life from the sword, my only life. From the power of these dogs, save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answered me. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. I will give praise in the great assembly because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him, even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what he has done. So, this goes back to the question, why did Jesus quote this? So, one of the things that we know that we know cosmically, theologically, is that in this moment, Jesus was enduring the wrath of God as the one chosen to bear sin on behalf of on behalf of the world. That is one thing that we do know. What he's doing here, though was he's calling the people back to say essentially do you see what go- do you see are you list- are you paying attention and as we follow how the the gospel writers have written 
their accounts. We see every single moment of this psalm play out. All of it happens. Yeah, the, the and we missed this today. I don't know if we said this, but, you know, we, we read that quote and we put it in isolation. Well, he just said the first part of it. No, that was a reference to the entire psalm. That was the, the, the norm of the day was you would reference a psalm by reading the, or quoting the first line. And the understanding was you meant the entire psalm as well. So that's what Jesus mm-hmm. on the cross, he is referencing this psalm. Anybody hearing then, and of course us having in scripture, it would draw us to that psalm. And as you're saying, the, the intention was to give those people an opportunity to say, oh, wait a minute, David wrote this centuries ago, and it was a messianic prophecy, and it's happening before our very eyes. You, you have to wonder, what was going on as, like, because, I mean, we know that there were a bunch of people who who said things like, oh, he's calling for Elijah. Well, if Elijah, like, you know, and... And, and this kind of thing. And he's like, well, if his, you know, he trusted in the Lord, let the Lord save him. Things that are quoted in this Psalm, they're based, they're saying these things as it's happening, but we can't miss what happens at the end of verse 21 and on where it's at, where it doesn't just stop at here's all of the suffering and all of the pain and all of the rejection and all of the sorrow He says, you answered me and says, I will proclaim your your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you in the assembly and all you who fear the Lord, praise him. And, you know, I I just love this. We again, we see that hint of Simon the Cyrene, as we mentioned before. We know this psalm, as you're saying, all right, this is the darkest day in human history. This is the most evil event ever. And yet, look, we're seeing these these slivers of grace, these slivers of glory. And that ending of the psalm is another one. And it, it leads into the next question. And it's, what is the meaning of the temple curtain tearing? Because as soon as, as Christ dies, it, it, we read that he lead, lets out a loud cry, breathe his last, and then the curtain was torn into from top to bottom, verse 37 of, of Mark. And it's yet another glimpse of glory. This, I mean, it's a beautiful picture here put before us. We know that that curtain was the one that separated the holy place from the most holy place or the holy of holies in, in the temple. And the most holy place, the holy of holies, was where God's presence dwelled. And only one person could enter that room one time a year. That was the chief high priest on the Day of Atonement. So this curtain was a barrier. It was, it was marking a separation between God who is holy and sinful humanity. It, it, that barrier, we have to understand barrier. And so when it tears, and it's not accidental, it tears from top to bottom. It's an act starting up, working down. It is picturing how God, the actor, has made it possible through Christ, through the death that just occurred, making it possible for humanity to come into God's presence. That that barrier has now been rendered permanently. That access is not restricted as it has been. Access will be open to all who trust in Jesus because he has just paid that sin penalty on the cross just now. So again, this is a great exclamation mark of the purpose of what we saw happening just now. 
one of the things that that honest quite honestly really frustrates me in church culture is a tendency to leave something like this passage only for one time of year to leave it only for March, April, when we celebrate Easter. We should talk about this then. But if but this is what we're about. This is who we're about. This is why we come together, period. So we need to, we should be talking, we should be celebrating this every time we get we gather together. Because there's no reason for us to be together as a people aside from what Jesus did. Yeah. So, all right. So let's switch gears. We've talked a lot about what happened in the text, questions we should be asking. What kind of guidance should we offer people when they are working through this passage with others? So whether they are you know, teaching a, teaching a class, um, discussing with, with friends or family, uh, working in kids ministry, however, however they are discipling others. I think the first is what you just said, and I'll just double click on it because, you know, I don't think we can say this enough that this is one of the most important events in all of history or one could argue the most important, especially if you, if you marry this together with the resurrection, um, yeah, as you, you should. should. But I mean, this this event <laughs> yeah. itself is incredibly important, as we know. And as we've seen, hopefully, as as you have been listening, hopefully you have either been reminded of or encouraged, or maybe learned something for the first time that all these details matter. They're significant. They're they're not just thrown in randomly. Um, we can spend ample time studying the details, and we just scrape the surface and we skipped several things in here. And this is just Mark's account. You look at. Matthew, Mark, or Matthew, Luke, and John's account, and there are even additional details. So we have nowhere near exhausted an analysis, a study of this text. And look, how long has this episode been? We've been going for a while. Um, mm-hmm. this, this event deserves our time and attention. And I'm with you. I, I think we have to move away from thinking that this is something reserved just for Easter time. As you said, yeah, it is right and fitting. We ought to look at this in Easter, but we ought to look at it other times of the year as well. There's, there's no, you know, time frame where it's permissible to study this. Just as there's it's the birth of Christ, it's permissible to study that any time of the year as well. Um, mm-hmm. We and we just can't study this too much, and that would be my heart. Especially me, we're different as we shared our stories. I grew up in the church; you did not. So I, I lo- I've lost track of how many times I've heard the Christmas story taught. I've lost track of how many times I've heard this. <laughs> and, and there's this danger in becoming too familiar with it, thinking, all right, we got this. And we, we may understand the big brush, brush strokes, but there's more to drill down on. And, and even, you know, just that Psalm 22, you could spend so long there just worshiping just because of that one part of it. Uh, the mm-hmm. temple curtain being torn. I mean, each of these is ample for us just to dwell on and meditate. So my my encouragement would be as we're discipling others and for ourselves as well, of course, we want to help them see this as an inexhaustibly deep 
reservoir of beauty and glory and majesty and all that we want to mine it for every single nugget of richness we can find from it and encourage our people never, ever think that you got this solved. That you are, I, I know this part. Let's move on to other parts of Scripture. Another piece, and this is this is something that we we've addressed a little bit earlier, but but I just wanna I just wanna remind us again, uh, particularly after we you know spent several minutes talking about uh, Psalm twenty two here, um, is that we need to read this close up. We need to not read the read the account of the resurrection from a distance, and so what I mean by that is is that we don't want to come to the text saying, how could they do that to Jesus? When we read the account of what happened to Jesus, what Jesus did to pay for sin, to welcome us who believe into his family, we need to read this from uh, with the right understanding that this happened because of not just their sin, but because of our sin. And so that's why it's so such good news even to like as you're reading reading this passage go and read John uh John's account of Jesus prayer in the read about how he prayed not just for those who were there but those who would come after. Basically telling his people this is for everybody. Yeah, and I, I think one other big idea that we'd want to help people we're discipling, whether they be kids, students, or adults, groups, or individuals, um, understand is, is this, that, that we have to consider why Jesus endured this. Um, you know, the people were, were partly right when they, were, they said, hey, why, you know, why, let's see if, if Elijah comes down to rescue him. Um, and, and one of the thieves kind of taunted him similarly in one of the other gospel accounts, I believe. Um, and there's some truth to that. I mean, at any minute, in theory, Jesus could have called on a legion of angels to come down and, and rescue him. Um, I don't even know if he had, would have had to done that. He, he could have come down himself. He could have performed a miracle and uh, come off the cross. And he, So at any minute, he could have left. He could have stopped this. But he didn't. And the reason why I think is critical, and often I'll hear this discussed and it's only discussed in part. I think there are two major reasons that we always have to keep in mind. The first one that we often hear is absolutely true and absolutely critical. He didn't because he loves us. This was an act of love for us. It was, it is, we in no way diminish that. But we can't stop just there because we also have to remember everything Christ has done he has done for the glory of the Father, just like it's all about us living for the glory of the Father. And so that is the second reason that he was there, because he knew it would bring the Father glory, that his, his sacrifice was the means by which God would be glorified, that we look and say, what a good God. I can't believe he has done this for us. So the credit goes to God. It, it can't stop with us. We, we have to be careful not making this man-centered and thinking, oh, it's just for us because he loves us because we're that important. Again, there's truth to that, but it's incomplete truth in, in my estimation. And I think this is what Hebrews 12, 2 has in mind when, when it says, for the joy that lay before him, meaning Christ, he endured the cross, 
despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of the God. What joy does the writer of Hebrews have in mind here? I believe it's the joy of obedience to the Father, of, of bringing the Father glory. And so both these reasons are critical. Why did Christ endure this? Because he does love us, but also because the Father might be glorified through this. Man, that is a great uh, a great th- point for us to end on, really the this reminder that even in the cross, Jesus was demonstrating um, the greatest commandment and the second one that is like it um, to 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 love God with all of His with all of our being, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. So, man, thanks for thanks for bringing that that around for us, and uh, thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com.